This morning, we are picking up uh, part seven of the kingdom among us, and we're walking through the gospel of Matthew, and we are at a point where Jesus is helping people to kind of deconstruct their religious background. How many of you, um, before maybe you, you got really connected um, to Jesus himself personally, thought that uh, religious people were just waiting around to tell you what to do and what not to do and had ever longer lists of things that you had to follow? Yes? I don't know. That was me. Well, we, at least we have like three honest people in the room. I mean, okay. So the crowd that Jesus had gathered... Um, all they had, their, their perception of religion or faith was what was preached by the scribes and the Pharisees, which was a lot of do's and don'ts. It was a lot of try to make yourself look a certain way, walk a certain way, pray a certain way, eat a certain way, do all these outward things a certain way, and that's what makes you fit and approved by God. Do we have, can I get at least a witness? Is there more than three honest people here that, yes, we have thought that about religious people? Right? I mean, okay, thank you, Diane. I've got, I can depend on you to speak up. Yes. Um, and so Jesus, the crowd is, is used to hearing, and that was their perception of religion. And what, when they started to hear that Jesus was healing people and what he was preaching, there was, there was demonstrations of power and what he was saying sounded different than anything they had heard before. They came out to see, does this Jesus have the good life and can I get some of it? It's, this is not any religion or faith that I've heard before. And so Jesus... Yes, after bringing healing, after meeting them, after being with them, he begins to teach them and help them in their thinking, say, you've heard religion and God talked about this way. I am talking about God a new way. We need our thinking to be renewed. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind to think about God to think about Jesus, not according to the outside stuff and maybe the, the trappings or the checklists of religion, but about the man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself and what he said and what he has invited us into. So we're picking up in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. Just as a warning, we are going to be talking about sex today. So, if there are young children or parents of young children in the house, I am not going to be scandalous in my language or I'm not going to be coarse in my language, but we are going to be talking about adult topics today. Um, so, just as I'm reading and as I'm getting going, just be, be aware. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. It's okay because Jesus talked about adult topics. Okay. You have heard it said, right? This is the Pharisees, scribes, scholars, the religious system, what people heard about in the past. You have heard it said, 
to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Oh man, we're preaching hope this morning, right? You can, you can just feel the hope in that passage. It's going to be a good day in God's Word, right? I mean, at a quick glance at this passage, I, it's hopeless. This, I, I mean, is, it is sobering. I mean, I mean, it would, for lack of a better term, it would make me, it, can, it kind of makes me wet my pants. It's so hopeless. It's saying, if you have a thought of sexual desire, you should get out your machete and start cutting pieces of your body off or you're going to end up in hell. That's hopeless. We would end up as mutilated stumps, right, sitting on the ground. Now, at a deeper look, we're going to take a deeper look this morning and see, even in this passage, which on the surface, we do take the Bible as the literal, inerrant Word of God, by which all life flows to us. There is no difference between Jesus the man and Jesus the Word, which is written in the Scriptures. But Jesus does not always speak literally. He speaks in parables. He speaks in illustrations. He foreshadows things about himself and the kingdom. These things are at work in this passage. And at a deeper look, there is glorious hope for all of us. So what is the command? The command, adultery is one of the Ten Commandments. Adultery, like murder, is always wrong. Except, unlike murder, our culture celebrates adultery. I mean, TV shows, movies, plot lines of books, it's, it's everywhere. We, you know, the person trapped in the loveless marriage, seeking and finally finding their soulmate in some green grass with rain, you know, c- coming, you know. It, the, the idea of finding this romantic engagement that is so intense, we celebrate in our culture adulterous Thoughts, feelings, and actions. Yet, just what Jesus is saying is actually even more sobering and, and difficult to reckon with. He's saying, just because you are not committing adultery does not mean you have a right relationship with someone. Just because you are not committing the act of adultery does not even mean you have a right relationship with your own sexuality. Jesus was confronted with crowds of men who thought there was nothing wrong with fantasizing and ogling women as long as they didn't act it out. 
That is what they were taught. That is what was modeled for them. Is anything really different today? Except it's not just men. It's men and women today. Most people, most people fantasize about other attractive people they see at one time or another. Many men and women are secretly locked in the stronghold. So we must be careful also to recognize that sexual desire is not wrong. It's not wrong as a natural, uncultivated response any more than anger is wrong as a response to let you know that your will has been violated or that your life is interrupted. I know nobody has experienced that. But we, we looked at if we feed anger, it becomes contempt, it becomes bitterness, it becomes vengeance, it becomes things that are sinful, unholy anger. But anger as a response, not sin. How about pain? Is pain sin? Pain is a response to something that is hurting us or is a danger to us. Sexual desire is a response that is built in to us. It lets you know, hey, I'm human, right? When a thought, I mean, it is a vital function that is good and proper. And when a thought of attraction or desire for someone we see arises, this is not sin or adultery in the heart. And in some ways, I believe the church has done a disservice to men and women because they have, they have set the line in the sand on what is sin and what is not sin to the point where any response or any reaction or any thought that is desirous is sin, and it makes people so full of shame and guilt that they are unable to deal with it and they give up, and they turn and run from God. But sexual desire is not wrong. We are sexual beings, I know that it's really hard to get an amen here. I mean, I'm I'm preaching good. This is good stuff. I'm gonna blush. Ah. Okay, amen. My wife is saying amen to that, right? So he's saying, what is the sin, though? What is the turning point from response to where it becomes sin? Well, in adultery, we point our legitimate desires to illegitimate sources. We point our legitimate desires to illegitimate sources. In any, in, with any desire or th- thing that God has built into us, he has also given us a legitimate source by which those things are fulfilled, by which those things are grown, by which those things are experienced. But adultery is when we take our legitimate desires that God has given us And we forsake the legitimate sources God has given us for fulfillment, and we turn them on illegitimate sources. And Jesus in this passage, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her, or Jesus is referring to looking at another person for the purpose of desiring them. For instance, going to the beach with the secret intention of fantasizing over bikini or beach muscle bodies premeditating a plan to look at porn after your family goes to bed, reading erotic novels, getting lost in scandalous TV shows, and imagining yourself in the story as the main character who has it all, creating opportunities at work or on campus to run into a hot coworker or student to flirt and feed your fantasies. 
desiring that sexual attention has become our purpose for looking, planning, and pursuing. And Jesus is teaching a person who cultivates that kind of lust in their heart will never feel at home in his kingdom. You will always feel like it's a square peg in a round hole. You will always feel off-center, like there's tension. Because Jesus did not come to fix your behaviors. He came to make you the kind of person by which good behaviors naturally flow. He came to restore and redeem the root, your heart, your inner person. So what is adultery in the heart? Because Jesus is always, if you can say one thing about Jesus and his teaching, he is always teaching about our hearts. He is always teaching about his kingdom, his rule and reign, and the location of that, his rule and reign that he is most concerned about is inside of you. Using what is adultery in the heart? It is using someone's presence or picture to feed a fantasy. In other words, all of the elements of a genuine act are present minus the body movements. The heart elements are there. Usually, the only thing la lacking for acting it out is the occasion. Because when the heart is ready, the actions will follow as occasion occurs. When the heart is ready, the actions will follow as occasion occurs. You know, I had a, I had a friend several years back, and he was working retail, and he was assigned to work the night shift for a season. And he came to me and another friend, and he started saying, hey, I am really struggling, fantasizing about and thinking about, I'm really attracted to this woman who works with me on the night shift, and there's not very many other people around, and I am, I am, like, I am, I, I'm in a, I'm in a dark place. I feel very at risk right now. And so we're, we prayed for him. We encouraged him um, to take these things to the Lord both and, and prayed over it. Like, what is the, the real issue in his heart? What, where, where, what is prompting him to want to, to, to feed this fantasy and to go after that and to seek that attention? And we, for weeks, we would, we, would, we would pray together. We talked about it. We even encouraged him, hey, if you need to get yourself out of that situation, right, it would be better to quit your job than to lose your family. Like what Jesus says, it's better to go in without an arm than to burn in hell. Seriously. And then things, by his report, seemed to be going better. And like, okay, you know, awesome. And we'd ask him about it, and he would tell us it was fine. And then a few months later, it all blew up. Because the occasion presented itself for him to act out his fantasy. And unfortunately, he did. And his wife left and took their kids, and it all blew up, and he was a hollow shell of the man he used to be. You know, but we, there is a danger to focusing on sin's headlines, their occasions. 
Think about this. How many of you have been shocked and say, how could a person shoot up a school full of kids? Like, it's, it's unthinkable when you read articles about mass shootings, how could a person go into a school and shoot up a school for a kid, full of kids? How could a mother traffic her own children into sexual slavery? We ask these questions. How could this possibly happen? How could a pastor with amazing influence and fruitfulness throw his reputation, family, and ministry away for a few minutes of pleasure? And when we focus on sin's occasion, the headlines at the end of the story, we don't take seriously sin's origin. When we focus on the headlines, it's easy to say, well, I would never do that. I, that, that would never be me. And it, we disqualify, we actually separate ourselves from the real risk and proximity that we all experience to sin's origin, which is much smaller than the headline. Let me illustrate. This is a passage in Matthew chapter 14, later in the book, and, Jesus, and uh, it records a passage about Herod the Tetrarch, or a regional governor, who ended up beheading John the Baptist. So, says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, he's making up a story here. We'll find out why. He tells his servants that Jesus, that's not Jesus. It's actually John the Baptist, and he's risen from the dead, and therefore the powers that you see at work in Jesus, they're actually because he's John the Baptist. For Herod had laid hold of John the Baptist and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, John the Baptist had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her, for you to take your brother's wife. And so although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted John the Baptist as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When we only marvel at sin's occasion, we don't take sin's origin seriously. If we only look at the headline, John beheaded, the prophet of God executed, gruesome scene at the party, we don't really take seriously or identify with where we struggle with sin's origin. None of us in this room are immune to the origin of the violations and small violations of conscience and ignoring the Holy Spirit that get us on a path to sin's occasion. None of us are immune to that. All of these headlines... Start with a small violation of conscience or ignoring the Holy Spirit. 
Herod is a rich and influential guy. He cultivates lust after his brother's wife. She wants an upgrade. Philip is not wealthy enough. They agree to cut Philip out of the picture and do a family realignment. John the Baptist gets wind of the plan and he begs Herod, hey, this is wrong. It's wrong in the sight of the Lord. This will end in your destruction. Don't do it. Herodias, the woman, wants John silenced and so Herod throws him in prison. Then to appease John's followers, Herod makes up a story that John died and Jesus is actually John the Baptist risen from the dead. Then Herodias who seduces men to feed her own greed and selfish ambition, has her young daughter do an erotic dance for the man she wants to marry. This is sick. She's maybe 13. She's trafficking her own daughter. Herod becomes intoxicated on his own hormones and blurts out an offer to this girl that will tie a noose around his neck. The mother steps in and has her daughter ask for John's head on a platter. Herod was sorry. He was sorry. Let me tell you, sorry doesn't cut it. Sorry does not cut it. There is no sorry in the Bible. Sin can be confessed and forgiven, but sorry doesn't cut it. Sorry is I am sorry, but I'm about to do what's wrong anyway and nuts to you. Sorry is more about you than the sin. Herod was sorry, but he does it anyway. And what has happened? Herod is later exiled. He dies at the hands of his brother Philip's army, alone with nothing. Story sound familiar? The occasion for sin begins with a small violation of conscience. Herod started with a lustful look. Where are you playing with sin's origin? Where are you violating your own conscience and allowing thoughts to roam around on the hamster wheel of your heart? Because when you do, Satan will look for an opportunity to sift you like wheat and destroy you. Because when your heart is ready, all he has to do is set the table. You've already done it in your heart. You are ready. You're already, you already feel the shame of the act and you haven't even committed it yet. You're already on the conveyor belt. Ushers, can you help and pass out the communion elements? And Melody, if you can come back up. Um, we're gonna move into just a, a time um, of worship here in a minute. Because Jesus does something stunning here. Do you want missing parts or a kingdom heart? Do you want to go into heaven a mutilated stump or with a kingdom heart? Because acceptance by God is so important that if cutting off body parts could do it, we would be wise to start hacking. Jesus, though, is not suggesting we sharpen our machetes. He is illustrating the importance of God's acceptance. He is illustrating the severity of sin. 
the seduction of sin. He is illustrating what lurks at the door of our hearts. He is illustrating the futility of trying to master it in our own strength. I am telling you, if all you are preaching to yourself is try harder, try harder, try harder, you will fail. You will be a mutilated stump with a wicked heart. Our mutilated stump with no eyes or hands can still have a wicked heart. The important question is, what would we do if we could? Eliminating body parts will not change that. We could dismember ourselves to the point we are incapable of murder, incapable of adultery, or incapable of theft. Yet our heart could still be full of anger, contempt, and obsessive sexual desires. Jesus is addressing the deeper issue of who we are, not what we have done or are capable of doing. Now, to be consistent with his message here to the crowd and also to the entire theme of his teaching, listen to Mark chapter 7. He tells the Pharisees, evil originates from inside a person. Coming out of a human heart are evil schemes, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, treachery, debauchery, jealousy, slander, arrogance, and recklessness. All these things, all these corrupt things emerge from within and constantly pollute a person. Friends, they don't come from your hands. They don't come from your eyes. They don't come from your hair or your feet. They don't come from your makeup or how you dress. Evil things originate from inside. Nobody makes you do anything. Nobody makes you feel any certain way. Those things come from inside you. That's why Jesus came to redeem you, not to fix you, to redeem you. Jesus is illustrating the futility of Pharisee righteousness to the extreme. But this is the good news. I never, I never saw this until this week. There's so many things hidden in plain sight in the scriptures. Jesus is foreshadowing what he must do under the law, in the flesh, to make his kingdom available for us. He is foreshadowing what he must do under the law, in the flesh, to make his kingdom available to us. Listen to Paul say in Romans chapter 8. He says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus had to come in the flesh. He was dismembered in the flesh under the law for our sin. His body was broken. He was the mutilated stump so that our hearts could be restored right there in the teaching. He's foreshadowing his own dismemberment. Romans chapter 8, Paul continues. He says, so then, beloved ones, <laughs> glory to God, the flesh has no claims on us at all. We have no further obligation to live in obedience to it. 
So you can say when that thought crops up, when your flesh has an appetite, you can say with a surety, no, Jesus, he was already dismembered for that. That curse has been broken. And he has come inside of me to give me a clean heart and a pure heart to continually renew a right spirit within me, to transform me by the renewing of my mind and my thinking that I'm not stuck in a checklist, but I have become someone from whom the checklist flows. He's done the inner work in you, and he's still doing it. When we receive his kingdom rule in our hearts, he fulfills what the psalmist longed for in Psalm 51. Create a new, clean heart within me. Fill me with pure thoughts and holy desires ready to please you. Where are you violating your conscience? Where are you justifying the hamster wheel of rehearsing wrongs, rehearsing your fantasies, rehearsing the grass is greener on some other side, whatever side that is? Water your own grass! It'll get green! Where are you violating your conscience? His body, he was dismembered in the flesh under the law, broken. Look at the piece of bread. It's broken. It's crushed. Under the law, in the flesh, he was dismembered, destroyed beyond recognition for you, for me. Not so we could follow the rules. But that our hearts would be renewed and made new. God, we eat this bread in remembrance of what you did for us. His blood was poured out. It is a line in the sand that cannot be crossed by any devil in hell. This is the cup of your eternal security, your eternal safety, your eternal covering for the remission of every wayward thought you've ever had or will ever think. This blood covers it all. It was the full price. Our sins are forgiven.